This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I'm going to blast through a few headlines from today and yesterday. In the business world, uh, Marvin Ryder joins me. I believe Marvin is actually out on the town or having dinner or something tonight. So we are thrilled to be able to interrupt his dining experience. Marvin, thanks for doing this. Well, I'm trying to extend patio season, so if you happen to hear an alarm or a siren, you'll know that I'm still outdoors on this time of the year. Or chattering teeth, I'm guessing. <laughs> no, it's not that bad tonight. No? Actually. Okay, no well, wins, that's good. So it's not too bad. Uh, let's go through. There's three that I want to get to uh, today. Big headlines that we've seen today and yesterday. Number one on the list today. Here is the headline. Uh, the USA has begun dropping its bombshell demands <laughs> in the NAFTA talks. Now, first of all, what are these new demands, and do they really qualify as bombshells? Right. So let me just take you back and say that I, I'm not sure if these are bombshell demands. One of the problems, we're about to start the fourth round of NAFTA talks. U.S. has saber-rattled on a number of fronts. For instance, they said they'd like to revisit supply management, which is a very key thing in our uh, agricultural industry. Uh, they said they wanted to deal with the, the auto industry and, and American content. But up till now, in the first three rounds, they've not provided any details. So today there was the first uh, surprise, if you will, announcement or detailed announcement, and that is that we're going through all this NAFTA agreement, but they'd like it to only last for five years. And then, well, maybe we'll renew it five years from now. Now, that's a non-starter for both Canada and Mexico. We're not going through all of this. And if you will, scrambling the egg, uniting our economies, creating free trade so it can all be unraveled in five years. Um, uh, this is just a bizarre arrangement. Now, why Donald Trump seems to want this is that if it suddenly is deemed that he's negotiated a bad deal, well, at least he can turn to the American people and say, wait me out a few years and then it'll, it'll all be ended. That's not going to work. Now, what may happen is that it might be something like a 10-year deal and with automatic renewal for another 10 years or something to this effect. But if you look at the European Union, we didn't form the European Union on a five-year renewable basis. You say we're going to unite. We say we're all going to be part of something. That's the new future. We're not going to unscramble that egg at all. Would it not? Is there no possibility, and I don't know the answer, honestly, but is there no possibility that a shorter-term deal could actually have benefits for Canada or Mexico in this, or would that deal only in that short-term benefit the states? Yeah, so the key part of this is the word short-term. I think it all depends what you're talking about. Because free trade really requires a radical rethinking of everything that you're doing, customs, the, the gathering of tariffs, how you unite companies. And then if you're a big company, then how you deploy your resources. Because now that I've got free trade, I can have some things in Canada, and the stuff I do in Canada goes in the United States free, and vice versa, in Mexico and free in the United States. But if you tell me it's only going to be around for five years, then it might not exist then why would I take a chance and build something somewhere? In five years, I might have to unravel all of that. So th this is why normally we wouldn't have such a term. If we were going to have a term at all, I think short term might be something like 10 years. And if I was Justin Trudeau and it came right down to it, and this was the, the big deal breaker in the, in the room, maybe I might agree to a 10-year deal. But anything shorter, why are we going through all of this if we're only looking out until the year 2022? One of the other things, and that certainly was one of the parts of the headline today, the other, and you alluded to it, was uh, a, a suggestion about the car industry that they want to have, I think, 85 or 80 percent of car parts made in the States or made in North America. Uh, right. So let me, let me help you there. So the, there's two parts to this, and one part we love, and that part is to say that cars that are going to be in North America, that are going to be in duty-free and have free trade, what have you, the Americans are proposing that now 85% of the content should be made in North America. Today, it's a much smaller percentage. It's on the order of about 45%. So in principle, Canada and Mexico would say, well, great, more local content's great. The car industry is not quite as keen on this because there are some things that they need for their cars that just aren't made in North America. And if you put a dollar value on them, they're not sure they could do 85. But if you split the difference, call it 65%. No one's that upset about increasing the North American content, but the bombshell was the second half of this to say, take the, take the ratio up, but oh yes, half of that 85 or half of the 65, that should be American content only. Well, now, how are you defining American content? So, you know, if, if I build the engine in the United States, but I've got Canadian parts, does it consider itself American or is it Canadian? 
and, and, and that seems to be part of the problem here, too. Then how will you go about defining this? So I don't blame the Americans for putting it on the table. They actually haven't put it on the table yet. They're going to put it on the table tomorrow. And then we're going to have to investigate it, research it, maybe make a counterproposal. And the question that ultimately is, is really laying over top of this fourth round of NAFTA negotiations, are these really serious proposals and there's some room for negotiation? Or is this simply an attempt to get the other two parties, Canada and Mexico, to walk away from the talks? And then Donald Trump can say, see, I should have ripped it up right from the beginning. If you put outrageous things on the table, are you really serious about negotiating? This is why Justin Trudeau went to Washington yesterday. He then flew on to Mexico to talk to his Mexican counterpart. It's very important that Canada and Mexico sing from the same song sheet on this. And I think he was trying to get a sense from Trump how serious he is. I don't think Trump revealed any cards at all in their conversation. Okay, let us move on to the second big headline from the business world from the last day or two, and that is the headline, Sears Collapse Will Ripple Through the Economy. Now, you and I at numerous times have talked about how the oil industry, if something were to happen there, that has ripple effects everywhere because of the spinoffs and the businesses. I have a harder time understanding why, I mean, a lot of jobs for sure, but why Sears would have such a huge effect on the economy. Mm-hmm. So again, let me just take you back a week. It was last Wednesday that Sears went to court to extend their creditor protection to the first week of November. And they said, we're hoping for a white night to come riding over the hill. But if we don't get that white night by November the 7th, we may be forced into liquidation. In the meantime, we're going to close 10 more stores. Well, less than a week later, Sears did take a look at a final offer to buy the company, and it just didn't work. The person didn't have his financing. And so rather than waiting until November 7th, and I I don't blame them for this, if there really isn't a way out, the best thing you can do is to tell everybody that, look, you're going to lose your job. Hey, you companies who own these buildings, we're going to vacate them, and it's all going to come back for, for you. Also, from Sears' standpoint, doing the liquidation in late October, November, December, this is the prime Christmas season buying. They'll probably get the best value they can for their inventory and at least pay the creditors as much as they can. So this is where we're at. Now, is it going to send ripples? I'm going to say no, not the same way that the oil and gas industry does. But the problem with the Sears closure is it follows really two and a half years after the Target closure. And we haven't reabsorbed all that retail space Uh, The most recent statistics I've seen suggest that about 65% of the target retail space is back in action, back moving. Today, though, there's still 35%, which isn't 100 and some odd, 130 stores for target. And now we're talking about a new 130 stores for Sears coming vacant. And on balance, the Sears stores tend to be a little bigger than target. This is not the news the landlords wanted to hear. Uh, I know some of those stores will get reabsorbed, but boy, we haven't got the first one absorbed yet. So this is the problem. These stores are likely going to sit empty longer. Some of these malls may have these empty spaces for four or five years. Take Lime Ridge Mall to have that one end of the mall sitting vacant if it was three or four years. That, that's not a good thing. It actually tarnishes the whole mall when you see a big store sitting empty. And, you know, I was going to, I'm glad you brought up the, I, I knew you would, but why you bring up the malls, because Target, they seen most of them anyway were either in uh, standalone places or they were in uh, super centers. They weren't necessarily anchors of malls themselves, whereas Sears has, seems to have a lot more of them. So it, it's not right. just them as far as a business, as you say, that it will affect. Yeah, some of the targets were in, uh, you mentioned the super centers, but also what we might call a community mall, a smaller scale mall, like say University Plaza and Dundas, that maybe there was one small anchor but the Sears, for sure, were part of the bigger mall complexes, and that's a hangover from the days of Eaton's and Simpson's Sears and, and even the Bay. Those were always what you built your mall around, and it's just going to be harder. So to take an example, again, at Lime Ridge, is a two-story affair. There's two, store, two floors of retail. I can't think of anybody who's going to want to move into that space with two floors of retail. So for sure, the owner is likely going to have to partition this, maybe one company on the first floor, one on the second floor. And even that might be too big. They'll have to break into smaller chunks the way they did it in Burlington with the target there. So this is going to take more time. It's not going to affect 2017. But in 2018, I think there were a number of people hoping for a better retail year. And Sears' failure is just going to make it harder for retail to totally bounce back. Number three headline uh, from yesterday, but wanted to get to it yesterday, weren't able to do it. Uh, we keep hearing uh, Hamilton, second best for jobs in Canada, says report. Uh, that sounds like for all the other stuff that we just talked about that was horrible with NAFTA falling apart, apparently, and with Sears falling apart, Hamilton suddenly being the second bl- best place in Canada to have jobs. That sounds like a great thing. 
Well, and it, and it is. Now, the one little caveat, again, I have to warn people is that they base this on where people lived, not where they were necessarily employed. So Hamiltonians are, have reduced their unemployment rate, one of the lowest unemployment rates, and there have been lots of jobs for Hamiltonians, but they aren't necessarily in Hamilton. As we know, every morning, if you have to, to commute, you see how busy these highways are and how filled with cars they are. Hamiltonians are not constrained to find employment in Hamilton. They'll look at the whole GTA. But, I mean, again, good news that they're finding work. We have a very low unemployment rate. Maybe I'll even go so far as to say a surprisingly low unemployment rate. Now, the only other thing I'd caution people about with a story like this, it was based on third quarter data. The third quarter entered on September 30th, so here we are early October. And on these sorts of studies, I feel really, really confident when they talk about national data. I even feel fairly confident when they talk about provincial data. But when they start breaking it down into cities, the sample sizes get very small, meaning there's a lot of error in the numbers. And I have actually seen this go where one quarter we're the, the star, the gem, and then a quarter later we aren't the star. And neither of them are really accurate readings. It's more in the middle. So I tend to look at a longer-term trend. But again, that's great news for, for Hamilton. If I look at to the trend over the last year, the last four quarters, Hamilton's unemployment is going in the right direction. We see signs of strength in the economy, better in many cases, better than we were even in 2007. So we're reversing from the Great Recession, and things are starting to look really good for us here. I'd like to see that momentum continue for a couple of more quarters before I pronounce us all back and healthy. Does it matter, though, whether, because you say that not everyone, some people are commuting and it's not all in Hamilton. Does that matter? Well, uh, that's the person who's employed. Obviously, if I'm, uh, if I'm needing employment and I can find it in Burlington or Oakville or Niagara, for the city, though, the city councillors and the Economic Development Department, they would sure love to create more jobs here. This is why so many of the cities in North America are salivating over the prospect of an Amazon headquarters, because that could bring 50,000 jobs. Just imagine 50,000 good-paying jobs, sustainable jobs, low-polluting jobs. That's what they salivate for. Now, we've had a couple of good news stories. We had the Canada Bread Factory, Maple Leaf Foods. And we've had a Tim Hortons roasting facility. But they're hard to get those and hard to keep them going. And so this is really it's good news that the people are employed. What would be even better news is that we're attracting some more businesses who are going to create more jobs here in Hamilton. That's why you never blink. You never stop. You have to keep beating the bushes and waving the white welcome mat, showing them what a great place this is for people to start their businesses. Uh, last thing before we let you get back to dinner. Uh, we keep hearing so much about precarious employment. Is, yeah. that, is that factored into this when we talk about how Hamilton is doing so well, but so many people say, yeah, but it's jobs that I could be without whenever. Is, does that factor in or do we just say, no, a job's a job? <laughs> so when Stats Canada reports, they do split it out from sort of part-time employment, full-time employment, and also self-employment. And, and again, sometimes that can be a little misleading. So you'll see a statistic that we have great employment, but it was 12,000 self-employed jobs, people creating their own opportunities, and sometimes those aren't the most sustainable. Precarious employment is a concern. Now, for the Bank of Montreal study, which is what we've been quoting from here, for them, a job is a job. So whether it was a full-time job, a contract position, the key is that people are working and we've got some of the best numbers we've had in a long, long time. They haven't really factored in whether this is a job for six months or a year. But the other thing I would tell you is that kind of precarious employment is always more common when you're coming out of a recession. A company that had to do a layoff but now needs a few workers is reluctant to bring people in full-time, so they'll start them on contracts. As we, as we have been progressing and getting stronger, what we've noticed is the number of part-time jobs going down and more of them being converted into permanent full-time positions. And again, I don't want to say we're all out of the woods yet. I'd like to see another couple of quarters of this. But if that trend continues, then the problem of precarious employment is starting to decrease a little bit. And that's great news for everybody in this economy. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Uh, we will allow you to get back to your meal. Hopefully they've delivered it by now and you can, uh, <laughs> you can get dining. Marvin, thanks for doing this. Anytime, Scott. Happy to help. It is, uh, look, so many things going on. So many things, good news and bad news. I, the the Hamilton is being the second best place for jobs right now. Look, anytime you can get a nice headline, it looks good, assuming there's some truth to it, which there is some truth to it. Uh, it's a good thing. Let's hope, as Marvin said, let's hope this is that next time this this comes out, the next time we have a report, it doesn't turn out that Hamilton is now the second worst, that there's some continuity to this thing and that we're actually building something. That would be very nice. 
because so many of the other business headlines, um, not as enthusiastic, not as exciting. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. The fifth quarter, which will be after every Ticat game, that means tomorrow evening, because tomorrow night, the Hamilton Tiger Cats face off, kick off, square off, something off, against the Calgary Stampeders. And I'm betting that my next guest, who really, it's hard to call him a guest, he kind of lives at this place, um, Rick Zamperin. I'm guessing, Rick Zamperin, that you have some kind of memories of the last time Hamilton and Calgary played. You know, it's hard to imagine <laughs> back, <laughs> back in July. Uh, I just can't quite recall what happened. <laughs> I think your ears are still bleeding from taking the phone calls after the game. The, uh, the, the record set for downloads on that fifth quarter, quarter podcast are still, I don't think they will ever be attained. It's one of those, it's kind of like one of those Olympic records uh, or, or crazy records from decades ago in Major League Baseball that will never be touched. I yeah. think that was just one of those incidents, one of those games where uh, things just went awry and uh, it snowballed in a hurry. It was the Florence Griffith Joiner of fifth quarters. <laughs> uh, and you did, and you... And you required no performance-enhancing substances to help you make those records. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, okay, for those who are saying, what are you guys talking about? Um, it, last time Hamilton played against Calgary, the score was 60-0, not 1-6, 6-0 to 1, 60-1 to for Calgary. It was the third, Rick, biggest yep. De- yep. margin of victory or margin of defeat, whichever side you were on, in the history yep. of the CFL. And it was, quite frankly... Uh, in a season that, to that point, and for a little while longer, was filled with humiliating moments for the Tie Cats. It was, it was up there. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, that was, you know, that was a game where I think it was thirty-nine to one at halftime, and I, I can't even imagine what <laughs> what was said at halftime. Like, guys, we still have another half to play. We we can score thirty-nine points too, uh, but Calgary just kept on coming, kept on scoring points. You know, it was. I can't really say that was a microcosm of the season because they've played well in some games, but that, without a doubt, was the biggest shellacking that I've seen a football team ever take. The all-time record, which Hamilton, by the way, was involved in as well, of course, eighty-two to fourteen, and I think Edmonton had beat the old Ottawa Roughriders sixty-three to three. So 60 to 1 in today's day and age, I mean, unless it's U.S. college football or even U sports football, uh, it's really unheard of. But at the pro level, where there's supposed to be some parity, you'd never see or you'd never imagine to see a 50 or, or a 60 to 1. And lo and behold, Calgary just crushed Montreal a couple of weeks ago, 59 to 11. So, I mean, that's a potent team. Hamilton wasn't playing well at the time, and things just kind of aligned for for that kind of final score. And Rick, if I recall correctly, and, and uh, honestly, the uh, visits with the psychologist have helped to erase that part of my uh, my memory, thankfully. <laughs> but the one point, it wasn't a missed field goal or something; it was a punt that happened to bounce into the end zone. Yeah, yeah, Sergio Castillo. Uh, so not even of- not even like close to scoring, just blasted it in, and <laughs> no. it's not like we had a chance for a field goal and just missed. It was it was just a complete and utter thorough disaster. Yeah, they, they didn't get a whiff of the red zone. They didn't get many first downs or many yards in that game. They turned the ball over. Uh, it was an absolute demolishment. And <laughs> as the Tiger Cats eye a playoff spot, because you know at four and ten, remarkably, they're still in the playoff race. Uh, they're they're not only eyeing that possibility or at least continuing that playoff push, but they're eyeing, I would, I would imagine, they're they're wanting some revenge tomorrow night against the Stampeders who visit Tim Hortons Field. Well, the good news on that front, then, is that anything better than 60-1 to 1 is an improvement, uh, but, to keep them, to, but to keep themselves out of real trouble in the standings, they need at least a 59-point improvement because they've got to beat Calgary tomorrow. I mean, there's the, at this point, there's no, you know, okay, so they lose by 20. There's no moral victories at this point for the Ticats. They, they don't have any margin for error left, or at least not very much. Yeah, I mean, whether they lose by 59 or they lose by 1, uh, you know, a loss is going to be extremely detrimental to their playoff hopes. 
you know, let's put it this way. If, if Hamilton loses tomorrow night, and you know, a lot of CFL pundits are going to predict that the Stamps are going to win, and they probably should at 12-1-1. and They're the best team in the land. They've beaten the Ticats. I, I can't even remember how many times in a row it's been now. It's been that many. Uh, they're, they're clearly the favorite. Their heads and tails the best team in the CFL. So a Hamilton loss tomorrow, coupled with an Ottawa Red Blacks win against Saskatchewan later on tomorrow night, and Hamilton's out. So the Ticats must win tomorrow night if Ottawa wins later on. If Hamilton loses and Ottawa loses, the Cats have to run the table, and that includes beating Ottawa in a couple of weeks' time. And the worst part for Hamilton is that Calgary actually still has something to play for because if they win mm-hmm. this game, they lock up home field advantage right through. So it's not even like, oh, you know what, we'll put in our guys for a quarter and then start to rest them so nobody gets hurt. They're going to play. Yeah, this, this is not you know week 20 of the CFL season when you have everything locked up or week 17 of the NFL season where you, know, you, you already know your fate and you're resting a bunch of starters. Uh, case in point, Jerome Messam is coming back to play off the injured list. He, they were on their bye week last week. He was injured a couple of weeks ago, did not play against the Alouettes. So he still, I think, wants to retain his CFL rushing yards. Uh, he's at the top of that list. He wants to retain that kind of title going forward. Uh, you know, that's a badge of honor, and especially being a Canadian, uh, you know, it's a tremendous accomplishment. Bo Levi Mitchell and is getting a couple of receivers back. He wants to find the rhythm with those guys. This defense wants to continue to play as exceptionally as it has played, and Dave Dickinson is not going to let anybody, uh, you know, take a, a half-hearted approach to, to playing the Tiger Cats tomorrow night because he realizes, you know, this is a pro game. Uh, if, if one or two or a few guys kind of take the night off, they might not win the ball game, and, and, and they want to win it to you know, retain that home field advantage throughout the Western uh, playoffs. And, Rick, what is the Calgary record in the last 15 times they've come after a bye week? In the last 15 bye weeks, the Calgary Stampeders are 15-0. and 0. Yes. It's, it's remarkable. That is not... Well, okay, so that's the part where if you're a Ticat fan, you go, oh, we're screwed. Uh, now, the flip side is, and this, I, I went back and I was reminded of this today because I f- had forgotten, how in the name of all that is good and pure and holy in the world do the Calgary Stampeders lose their only game of the year to Montreal? The worst team in the league. How? Uh, of, I mean, I could I could get it if they lost to Winnipeg or if they lost to Toronto, even. Or how do they lose to Montreal? I can't even recall that. They, they've probably you know erased that from their memory banks. Just as Ticats fans have erased the sixty to one uh, debacle in Calgary. And you know what? It was from from my recollection. It's just one of those games where things didn't go well. I think Bo Levi Mitchell actually got nicked up in that game. Well, Montreal had things go their way. Darian Durant actually played like Darian Durant played about five years ago, uh, and they scored some points. But, you know, those are one in a million, and, and, and I'm not sure we're ever going to see a CFL team go undefeated because, man, it's hard to do in an 18-game season. Uh, we've only had one in the NFL in its, uh, you know, uh, decades-old existence. Uh, it's so hard to do. Week in, week out, be on top of your game, get the bounces, capitalize on those opportunities. Uh, but it goes to show you that anything can happen. A couple of guys take another team for granted, perhaps, and uh, you end up losing the ball game. Does that give Hamilton some hope? Uh, you know, yeah, we got killed, but uh, hey, Montreal beat them. So if Montreal can beat them, um, you know, Westdale High School might be able to beat them on a certain day. I mean, that's almost what you're saying. Maybe sure. not. Maybe not quite. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, <laughs> they, they can also, you know, take comfort in the fact that they went into Winnipeg last week and beat a pretty good Blue Bombers team. Mm-hmm. Everyone is touting them as being the second best team in the CFL and you know Hamilton beat them 30 to 13 you know quite handily forced uh you know Winnipeg out of their game took Andrew Harris out of the game entirely and put the boots to the Bombers so I think that gives them some confidence they're at home and even though they haven't played great at home this season I think their record at home is one and six Uh, playing at home is a little more comforting you have the fans you know behind you if things are going your way I can't imagine I can't imagine this Ticats team losing 60 to 1 at home I hate to see what that would look like but you know this team is has played much better since uh Labor Day uh June Jones seems to be putting uh, you know the right uh, pawns in place and Jeremiah Masoli had a great game last week let's see if he can continue it to tomorrow night 
How much does they now they lost their kicker and Sergio Castillo? Uh, you know, it's it's a sad state of affairs, I suppose, when your kicker might be your MVP. That's never a really yeah. good thing, but he has been great. So they lose him to what I think has it officially been diagnosed as a torn ACL. I, I, I mean, that was the the story, but regardless, he's gone, yeah. he's out. How much does that hurt, especially because we know how difficult it is to kick in Hamilton? That stadium has caused problems for lots of guys. Now you got to bring someone in who's unfamiliar. In a game where it, I mean, if Hamilton can keep this thing close, it very, it, I don't expect that Hamilton is going to blow Calgary out. So kicking may become very, very important if this game, if they're able to keep this thing tight. How much does it hurt that you've suddenly lost your guy? It's big, especially in the Canadian game where you have one guy doing all three. You know, in the NFL, you have a punter and then you have a place kicker or a kickoff guy. In the CFL, one guy is doing all three. So when Kenny Allen steps out of the field, there's a lot of question marks because, and we had those with Sergio Castillo at the start of the season. You know, how is this guy going to perform? And Castillo was amazing all season long, probably the team MVP when you when you break it all down. But Allen is going to be faced with uh, some difficult field position punts that he's going to have uh, have to uh, you know uh, uh, whether it's a uh, you know coffin corner or or make sure that. Uh, Calgary's return man, uh, Finch, doesn't get uh, you know some good return yards. Kickoffs are going to be especially important if it is uh, windy, as it's probably going to be each and every uh, game, it seems, at, at Tim Hortons Field. And, and then it comes down to field goal kicking. And now you're talking three points when your team can't score a touchdown. It, it's imperative that you get the ball between the uprights because those lost scoring opportunities are really going to bite you in the butt, especially when you face uh, you know a team that is as potent offensively as the Calgary Stampeders. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on Kenny Allen. Not only that, but June Jones has to have some kind of confidence meter to say, am I going to punt in this situation? You know, we're on the 43. we got a little bit of wind. Do we punt or we go for the field goal? Those kind of in-the-game chess match or, or key kind of decisions are really going to, uh, at the end of the day, I think, decide who's going to win and lose. You surprised that as the trade deadline passed, that the Ticats held on to Zach Caleros rather than trading him? Not at all. No, I didn't, I didn't expect any team to make any move because <laughs> at this stage of the game, at this stage of the season, to bring in especially a marquee guy who is going to be tabbed as you know the star of your team or at least a key component, very hard to do, especially at the quarterback position because now you're asking a guy. Uh, to go to a team, and, and if you're, let's say, uh, the uh, Montreal Alouettes, okay, we got Zach Caleros. Zach, you now have to learn a 9,000-page playbook, uh, uh, an entirely new terminology, and you have to gel with all these teammates, your O-line, your running backs, your your receivers. It is uh, extremely difficult to do for that position. Now, you can bring in a receiver, even a running back, as Edmonton did with C.J. Gable. It's much uh, it's a much smoother transition for those guys because they're not the they're not the conductors, so to speak. They're playing maybe the the tuba in the back row. They can do it. But do you uh, see any chance that he's back next year? I do see a chance. I think it's slim, and, and there's a number of factors for that. Number one, he does make a lot of money, mm-hmm. in fact, the most in the league. So, if he's not your starter today, what is going to make him your starter next season? Is it the fact that Hamilton won't re-sign Jeremiah Masoli, who's going to be a free agent? That I find hard to believe, especially the way he's playing and especially the way June Jones has bought into Masoli. There's so many dominoes, though. If Jones doesn't come back and the new coach comes in and says, you know what, Caleros is my guy, I want to keep him around. If Jones stays, I think Caleros is gone in a heartbeat. Not only that, we have the Johnny Manziel factor and kind of that cloud hanging over this franchise. If they bring him in, I think that's another nail in the Caleros in Hamilton coffin. And, you know, you go down the list, it's either Toronto, Montreal, or Saskatchewan at this point. And I think if you're a Rough Riders fan, you're thinking, and we have Brandon Bridge. I think we're looking okay here. But the hierarchy there, and Chris Jones might say that, uh, listen, I want the best of the best, and I still think Caleros uh, can do what it takes. So I I put the chances of him coming back uh, maybe at 25%. I really don't see him being in a Ticats uniform in 2018. When you look at the Ticats and their struggles this year, and it's changed a little bit in the last few weeks, but Hamilton last year gave up 502 points in the regular season on defense. The year before, it was 391. The year before that, they gave up 395. So they've always been between 400 and 500. And I know that's a wide gap, but still, there's where your sort of mark is. They have already given up 460 points, which puts them on pace for 591 points points against what's happened to this defense that has allowed it to 
They're now from from their heyday, from their best year, they're on pace to be 200 more points scored against them. What's happened? I think the biggest thing would be the change in coordinators. Orlando Steinauer really had not only buy-in but exceptional performances when he was here as the defensive coordinator. They were a lockdown, uh, bend but don't break kind of defense. They got to the quarterback. Uh, didn't get a heck of a lot of interceptions or turnovers, but uh, they disrupted opposing offenses. They made big stops, uh, and they didn't let a lot of points on the scoreboard. You look through the first eight weeks of this season, and it was always over 30 points. And, of course, in one instance, it was 60. Uh, you know, you you cut a lot of those uh, final scores from, you know, 35 to even 25, you know, 10 points per game times eight, there's 80 points off the board. So I think the coordinator position was absolutely key. Um, yeah, they had some injuries on defense, but every team does. I just think that is the major reason why this, this defense, even though it's playing a little bit better now, uh, is not as good as in past years. Uh, last thing, this is the week that, uh, if everyone remembers the Labor Day uh, hurricane, whatever you want to call it, come up with your own name, Hurricane Ticat when it blew through and that was just a mess. They gave people who were there got a free ticket to a game. This is the game I understand that the people who got their free tickets are going to come to. Uh, even that, even with that, Rick, do you think it's full tomorrow? Uh, I don't. No. Uh, never mind that it's uh, you know uh, Friday the thirteenth. I, I don't think people huh, will I forgot really about, that. about that. Yeah. But I, I think the cats will probably have a little bit of fun with that. Um, but it's the Calgary Stampeders. They're twelve one and one, and even though the season is on the line. It's getting cooler at night. Uh, you know, it might, it, it'll probably be fuller uh, in the first half than it is in the second half. And that might be a reflection of the scoreboard. Uh, but I think at this time of the year, when your team is struggling, even though it's been playing a lot better, but has struggled throughout the season, I think they've lost a few fans along the way. We've seen uh, smaller and smaller crowds, even though they continue to uh, announce, uh, you know, paid attendance as, you know, being a sellout. Uh, I think the Stamps, I think every Western team, maybe save for Regina, is always a tough sell. BC is a tough sell. Edmonton, uh, Winnipeg, of course, and, and Calgary's in that boat, too. And I think that the 60-to-1 factor, some you know, uh, fickle fans might say, you know, I'm not going to go to this game. They're probably going to lose anyways. They're going to be out. Uh, I've had enough. Uh, I just won't go. And, and there'll be those hardcore fans that will be there. What about so? What happens on your show tomorrow night? What happens on the fifth quarter after the game tomorrow? If they are better than sixty to one, but still lose, so they're basically almost eliminated. What do you think the reaction becomes? Are people now because they've been better under June Jones? Are people happy going forward, or if they're eliminated, are they mad when they get on the show tomorrow night? Assuming well, we, again, it's not sixty to one, just a typical loss. Yeah, if it's uh, you know a seven or ten point loss, I think it, it, it obviously depends on how players perform and how the team plays. But I think if they see some of the same old mistakes, you know, whether it's penalties or they can't capitalize on turnovers or Masoli has a Masoli-like game, in which he's, you know, in one week he's fantastic and the next week he's he's not so good. Um, I think that the fifth quarter tomorrow, and we won't know whether they're in and out, even if they do lose, because Ottawa's playing later on that night. But I think the sentiment will be, as it has been over the last number of weeks, that, hey, you know what, we, we have some changes that have to be made in the offseason, some still pointing to other members in the front office, but others really pointing to improving the product on the field, scouting better, getting better free agents, getting uh, you know better coaches or coordinators. Uh, they want to see some improvement. I think that's going to be the sentiment on the fifth quarter, uh, win or lose, because we've seen that over the last uh, number of weeks. Uh, ten, sometime between probably 10 and 10.30 tomorrow night, you will be able to listen in to Rick Zamperin on the fifth quarter and um, either celebrate or vent your spleen, which, whichever way you want to go, depending <laughs> on uh, how the game goes. Rick, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Should be a lot of fun. Take care. There's no chance it could be 60-1 to 1 again, right? There's no chance. Although, if it is 60-1 to 1 again and the Ticats lose, I'm telling you, do not miss the fifth quarter. That was that was still one of the uh, the great episodes of the fifth quarter when the Ticats got dealt that hand by Calgary last time. Uh, if they get if they if Calgary comes in and I I it's not going to happen again. But if it was another huge blowout loss, ooh, for some reason Calgary brings out the specialness in the in the callers. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML Sunday. Here in Hamilton, the African Children's Choir, Children's Choir, pardon me, it will be performing two free shows 
And then a couple weeks from now, they are going to be back in Hamilton doing a ticketed show with uh, local Juno winner Tommy Swick at the Spice Factory, which is on Houston Street North. Now, if you've never heard of the African Children's Choir, here's a little taste of what they sound like. Pretty remarkable group, and they have performed over the years with now different versions, different groups of the African Children's Choir. Have performed with Paul McCartney and Annie Lennox and Keith Urban and Mariah Carey and Queen and Faith Hill and Dirk Bentley and on and on and on. They've played for the Queen. They're a big deal. Uh, and the thing is, they're not just, even though they're entertainers, they're not just about music because this is also about giving vulnerable kids in parts of Africa a chance and then raising funds and awareness so other kids can also have those same things. Tina Sipp is the manager of the African Children's Choir. She joins me now. Tina, thanks for doing this today. Tina, are you there? There you go. Tina, how are you? (laughs) I'm doing great. How are you all? I'm doing very well, thank you. Um, Before we get into the music part of this, as I've been reading about this, and I've heard about this group, I think most people have before, it's a pretty remarkable, uh, well, the story behind it, but it's a pretty remarkable group of kids that come from some pretty, a lot of them from pretty devastating circumstances. Yes, that's true. Over the years, you know, we it started actually when there was a civil war going on in Uganda back in the 70s and 80s with Idi Amin, and and uh, we've been in you know war-torn countries. And even if there's not a war going on, we know that you know these countries are very impoverished, and education is not accessible to hundreds of thousands of children. And so, um, you know, we're continuing our work, whether it's war-torn or it's you know uh, the AIDS epidemic or just simple poverty, um, you know, it's, it's, the need is there and, uh, it's not going away anytime soon, I'm afraid. How then, because when you're talking of hundreds of thousands, how do you find the kids? How do they get chosen to be in this? Yes. You know, we work in several different, uh, regions and neighborhoods of, uh, you know, in the countries where we work and, uh, we have nationals who help run our education programs and we work with churches and community centers and it's really the people, you know, the nationals there who can help us identify families that are maybe the neediest, neediest of the needy, if you will, and uh, the children that, if, if we were able to help that child, that family would be really dramatically um, helped. And so we really rely on the nationals there to help us identify some children kind of for open auditions, and then we, from that, those open auditions, we select a group to come in for a weekend of camp and it might be 60, 70 children. And then from that, we, we narrow it down to uh, the 20 or so that come out. When you talk about the neediest of the needy, I mean, in North America, mm-hmm. we have a definition <laughs> and an idea what poverty is here. Mm-hmm. And it's a legitimate description of poverty. There are people here who are in Hamilton, wherever else, who are living in mm-hmm. what we would describe as poverty. Um, when you talk about the neediest of the needy, though, in these particular mm-hmm. places, what do you mean? These are people who uh, probably don't have much education, if any, and so they are really pretty much just kind of day-to-day. They're, they're maybe just trying to get a meal a day for their family, and they're doing very, very menial tasks, and uh, really with no hope of ever breaking out of that and being able to supply even their basic needs, you know, medical, uh, nur- just nourishment, education for sure, because even a government school, you have to have a uniform, you have to have pens and paper, and this is beyond the means of these families. So the the hope for education for their children is is really just kind of a dream, and uh, and so it's it's uh you know <laughs> it's pretty humble. It's a uh, you know very very meager, very humble uh, situations there. My understanding, and I was reading up on this today, is this really got started by a guy by the name of Ray Barnett, who I believe was a Vancouver mm-hmm. or a Victor. He was from BC somewhere. Um, yes. Tell the story, and I'm sure you've told it before, but tell the story of how <laughs> he started this whole thing. Where, where, how did this come to be, this whole thing? Yeah, uh, Daddy Ray, as we call him, he's, uh, he's still living and still very much involved, and he is just a great humanitarian. He's compelled by the love of Christ to, to do something for those that are in need. 
uh, regardless of, of who they are and where they live. And he was doing work with the persecuted church back in the 70s and 80s with another organization that he started called Friends in the West. And that work took him to Uganda during that civil war. And on one of those trips, he gave a ride to a little boy who had actually lost his parents, both of his parents, in that civil war. This little boy sang praise songs in the Jeep from the village into the town, and it just moved Daddy Ray. And he said, you know, if the West could just see these children, they would want to, they'd want to help. The beauty, the dignity, the potential of these children, they just need opportunity. And so because the little boy was singing and it was such a part of him and such a part of their culture, he had the idea of the choir. And so the first choir came out in 1984. And uh, so we're 33 years in. We've helped educate over 52,000 children, and we have approximately 1,000 former choir members. Wow. And, and so it was a touring group right from the start. Was that the original idea, or did it sort of morph yes. into that when he got them together and said, hey, we could take this on the road? No, it was uh, the original idea uh, to bring it out to the West to raise money. He wanted just to help maybe build an orphanage and get some of these children off the street um, who had been left completely, you know, truly orphaned, with both parents gone and uh, through that civil war. And so he thought, well, we need a, we need a place to put them and, and to care for them. And then when they came back, well, we need to educate them. We'll send another team out and we'll raise some more money to, to educate these children. And, and, and here we are. We've, uh, it's developed from there and... Um, you know, we're now seeing, right, uh, this is 33 years later, so those original children are now in their 40s, and we've got everybody from there all the way to the choir that's out on the road that you'll be seeing here in just a few days, you know, eight, uh, eight-year-olds, and, and everybody in between. And there's children in middle school and high school and college and people that have started their families and working in all different professions. And so, so we've seen the full circle many, many times, and, and that's very encouraging, very motivating to, to keep it going. We're trying to not just affect individual lives, as important as that is. We're also trying to affect the tide of Africa and help them meet some of their own challenges and uh, raising up future change makers, as we call them. Well, and, it's, uh, amaz- it's amazing the timing, Atini, even because mm-hmm. it's, I'm trying to think of the exact year, and I can't think of it off the top of my head, but roughly around the time, mid-80s, when he would have been first bringing this choir here, that would have been around the same time that Paul Simon came out with Graceland, and suddenly African music had been introduced mm-hmm. to a lot of people who'd never heard it before. It was all of a sudden really? very popular and very much in the popular culture, huh. and I'm just thinking the timing of it works out perfect. It, it worked out perfectly, obviously. It has, yeah. You know, I think we've just, the Lord's just kept his gracious hand on us. The, you know, the, these children have every right to receive an education and to be able to provide for themselves, and their situation does not completely allow for them just to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. You know, it's just the situation is not that way for them. And so, you know, when we get to help someone, I, I just think it's very unique. Uh, how often do we get to make a profound difference in somebody's life? You know, we go through our days and we do our thing, but when do we get to make some, make really a profound change in a real life? And this is what that is. Um, and so we're inviting people to join us and to, to take one life and turn it 180 degrees and to help them. They become then a ripple effect. They, that's a domino. They, if they get their education, they affect several people around them. You know, other children can get their education in their family. And so it spreads. And so it's, it's really very strategic. It's very intentional to invest in the children and to raise them up for future leadership. And, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to be a part of because we really are making an impact on real lives and, and hoping that we influence the, fu- the future of Africa, really. So the money that comes in uh, that's donated or for tickets or whatever else, that goes back to schools and other things back in Africa that get poured into allowing these kids to be educated? Exactly. We support 35 educational programs over five African countries. So the money that is raised on our tours goes back to supporting all those children in those 35 different programs. And so on any given year, we're supporting several thousand children in school. And uh, choir children themselves, once they're in the choir, they now are guaranteed an education all the way through college. Hmm. And and so those children really are, uh, you know, they're going to be you know, there's not, there's not many children in Africa that, that get a college education, so they will be leaders. You know, they will be, um, you know, in a different, um, a different circle, if you will, 
um, by just having that kind of education behind them. So we really uh, we take seriously not just not just giving them an education, but building their character. You know, raising people who who want to give back and who want to reinvest what they've been given into their countries, cities, communities, um, neighborhoods. And so it's a it's a multifaceted endeavor, really. You know, it's it's a it's it's really quite something to be a part of. Well, I'm going to drop a name on you here, and I, you probably okay. will know it because you probably wrote the thing about him, but I was reading it in some of the uh, literature that you have out there, and his name is Dr. Robert Kaya Sabula. Mm-hmm. Did I say that right? Yeah. And, yeah. and uh-huh. I was reading this, and I'm thinking, okay, he was in, I think, the second ever African Children's Choir that came out, and when you read about what's happened as a result of this, I, I, assuming you know his story, explain what happened to him. Yes, I believe... Uh, they were his family. Um, I, I I can't remember if they were from. Um, I don't know if they were some of the lost boys. They were they were child, they were basically children left on their own, and their their little group of siblings took off to try to go find relatives, I believe. And uh, I think one of the little children died along the way, and eventually they found them. They found their way to our organization, and uh, Doctor. And then Robert has, of course, gone on to become a doctor. But uh, their, you know, their, their starting, their starting out was was pretty rough. And um, without the help of the organization, or you know, somebody helping them, it could have been quite, even more devastating for that family of children. So yeah, it's, um, you know, <laughs> the need hasn't gone away. Um, there are many. I think what's really, what's really poignant about that story is that you don't know, you know, here you see this little boy you know, kind of going across uh, fields and, and who knows what cities he had to trans, you know, transverse, but who knew what potential light uh, was in that little boy? Mm-hmm. And, and here he is, an international doctor. And that's what we're, we don't know what seed is in each of those children. We don't know the potential that, that is uh dormant in any of those and, and how will we know if we don't give them that opportunity to become all that God wants them to be so I, I think that's exciting and in and of itself is that um, we get to be a part of unearthing and and peeling back and, and revealing the potential that's in place in that particular child and uh, so you know for me I, I take this pretty seriously We're, we've been entrusted with these beautiful children and uh, to invest ourselves in them to create character and to create people who, who care and who give and who serve and, and um, who are responsible adults. And, um, you know, giving to Africa something that it, it might have been hard for them to have done themselves. So they, they have these, the kids who are in this choir, uh, they have these remarkable stories. So when you sit and watch them mm-hmm. and they're, again, they're here this Sunday and then they're here on the 22nd of October again, when you watch mm-hmm. them, what's the appropriate feeling then to have? Should, I mean, is mm-hmm. sympathy an okay, th- do you feel mm-hmm. sympathetic or do you feel, what, what do you feel when you watch mm-hmm. them? Yeah. You know, that is, that's one of the best questions I've ever been asked in an interview, honestly. And I, it, that's a, it gives me a great opportunity because I think when I first started, honestly, too, I, um, I think there's a sense of, you know, we want to help, right, because they're poor and they don't have much, and we kind of think materially, and I think we might even a- apply the word pathetic. And what I learned very quickly was that's not the case. They're beautiful, they're talented, they're gifted, they just lack opportunity. And so what I hope people see is that this is not a charity. Um, I mean, in, I guess, legal terms, we are, a char- we are a charitable organization, but it's an investment, and I don't want people to feel sorry for the children. I want them to feel um, empowered to make a change in that life. And to, you know, we, if we all do something, um, whatever that, you know, whatever our means allow us to do, there's no end to the, to the, the impact that we could make if we, if we kind of all joined in, right? And, and so I hope people aren't, I hope they're moved by uh, the talent, by the spirit, um, and I think that is what happens at the concert, honestly. I think people think it's a great show. They love the music. They love the Af- African rhythms. But I think what really happens at the concert is people see the spirit of those children, the joy and the hope. In spite of the background, in spite of the circumstances, there's this resiliency that I don't know that the West 
possesses in the same degree. And I think it kind of calls people out a little bit. It called me out that I'm not so resilient. You know, I, I kind of want things the way I want them, and I want it now. And, uh, you know, uh, hopefully not encounter too many hardships. And these children encounter so many hardships and yet still have that joy and that hope. And I think it, uh, yeah, I, I think that's what people will see and I hope will take with them and invest in that life rather than I'm going to give out of a, a sympathetic heart. They are here in Hamilton again, Sunday morning at 9 and 11, this Sunday at West Highland Church, which is on uh, Garth between Stone Church and Rymel, if you were going. And that's a free, I, I understand they're going to take donations, but you don't have to have a ticket. You can just show up. It's 9 and 11, two different services, and they'll be, per, they'll be performing at both. And then uh, October 22nd, which is a Sunday night, they will be at the Spice Factory, which again is on Houston Street North. And for that information, that is a ticketed event. And it's rockthehammer.net if you want to learn about that one. They're playing with Tommy Swick, who again is a Juno Award winner from this area. Uh, so opportunities, if you want to see the choir, if you want, now that you know a little bit of the story, now that you know the background, now you know where they're from, now you understand we're not going to be sympathetic, we're not going to be feeling sorry, but you at least know <laughs> where they're coming from and what they've gone through to get here. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, Tina Sip, manager of the African Choir, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much, and it helps. And thank you again for helping us get the word out. We hope we invite everybody to come and, and have a very moving and inspiring evening with us. Thank you very much, Tina. Thank you, Scott. Have a great day. That is Tina Sip again, the African Children's Choir. I'll tell you the times again one more time, just if you want to go. And, you know, look, I understand that not everybody likes to get up on Sunday morning and go to a church. This is a unique opportunity uh, for something with this group. It is at West Highland Church, which is... Go up Garth until you're between Rymel and Stone Church, and it'll be right there. Uh, 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock, two different times. And then if you don't want to do that one, October 22nd, you have to pay to get into that one, but that's it's still going to be great with Tommy Swick at the Spice Factory, rockthehammer.net. Those are your opportunities. But what a... Um, if you go online and read, uh, if you want to read more about this, uh, it's a pretty simple website, africanchildrenschoir.com is the name of it. And there are some stories about some of the people, the, some of the people they've apparently, because of the funds and revenue generated by this choir through donations and tickets and everything else, 52,000 children apparently in different countries in Africa have been given the chance to be educated. That's, that's what we should be doing. 52,000 and many of them, or at least, well, I don't know if it's many, a number, let's hope it's many, but a number have broken through and achieved remarkable things and done amazing things. And again, there are stories on there of doctors and lawyers and uh, TV folks over there and everything else that, that never in a, just in a million years would have ever had these opportunities before. Think about it. AfricanChildrensChoir.com, RockTheHammer.net if you want to go look that stuff up. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.